Hey, this is Brian Fanzo, better known as iSocialFans. You're listening to the World of Speakers podcast with Ryan, and Ryan and I are talking about a wide variety of social media, live video, and everything that goes in to the package that is being a speaker today. A lot of fun, a lot of conversation, hopefully a lot of takeaways. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Welcome everybody to another episode of World of Speakers, where we help to find speakers from around the world who speak around the world to help you get a better concept of how you can do the same. Today, I'm super excited because we've got Brian Franzo, and if you're not following him on Twitter, you will by the end of this. He is one of the most retweeted people out there, and his information is valuable because he gives you the truth. He is someone who is no fear of being in front of the camera. I've seen him on stage a number of times, and the testimonials speak for themselves. So, Brian, welcome to the World of Speakers. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate the uh, the nice intro, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, couldn't have it any other way unless you were either a jerk or you were terrible at speaking, but then we wouldn't really be here in the first place. So it's all good. <laughs> well, that's true. You know, that's, I say speak the truth. I, I, I speak the truth in all elements, so I appreciate that on, on all sides. Yeah, rock on. So I want first people to understand about you. And, you know, the first part of the show, we always learn about your story. And you are out there, very visible on social, but where did it all start? And how did you sort of get into this track that you found yourself in? Sure. So no, and I, and I, I kind of love telling the story part. I think all of us speakers do, you know, for me, I'm often introduced myself as a, as a change evangelist. And, and what that really means is I've had a lot of change and a lot of interesting pivots and uh, things in my career. And for a lot of people, they, they would assume that I'm much older than I am just on based on my experience, but I am a millennial. I'm barely a millennial. I'm 36 years old. But for me, you know, I'm a computer science major. I went to school for computer science, but I was the the weird kid in school, or I say weird in a good sense, where I was the, the president of my fraternity. I was also the assistant captain of my ice hockey team in college, and I majored in computer science. And I was really the only person in any one of those three that did any of the other ones, right? So I'm, I've always had that kind of um, unique uh, kind of not only generalist on multiple things, but multiple interests. And out of college, I really couldn't get a job um, in technology. So I took a job working for UPS, delivering packages, wearing those those amazing short brown shorts that uh, we see everybody wearing. and With the socks too, right? The with socks, the socks are also of course, cool. with the socks. And, and surprisingly enough, it's all, you know, a mandate, but it was a, it was a great job. And Thanks to standing in a grocery store line one day, I was wearing fraternity letters and had a someone say, hey, do you have you ever worked with the government? And I, of course, said no. And they're like, have you ever worked in cybersecurity? And I said no. And he was like, well, um, I don't have to unteach you anything. Uh, he's like, can you, <laughs> do you want to have an interview to come join a uh, cybersecurity for the Department of Defense? And so I, I took that opportunity, of course, trying to get myself into the uh, kind of the computer field as a whole. And little would I realize that I would spend nine years in that role in that company. And what my job was is I ran a team of people that we deployed and trained the different U.S. military bases on how they would use cybersecurity solutions to not only protect their network, but also to collaborate with other branches of the military. So I always tell anybody, you know, collaboration is an interesting 
piece and it's something I talk a lot with, but my job was to get like the army to share with the Navy and the Air Force to share with the Marines. And so I challenged many people to have a much harder role when it comes to uh, getting groups to to come together and collaborate. But it's really there where I found my love for speaking as well as my love for kind of social media. And my claim to into speaking was nothing that I did myself. I had a manager come up to me and say, we need someone to be briefing the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon every quarter. And you're the only non-gray-haired person on our team in cybersecurity. So because of my age and because I was not uh, afraid of getting up on stage, I that was kind of my first foray into speaking. They actually sent me to a, a four-day public speaking course and had a certification course at the end to be able to actually present in front of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And it was a very interesting experience. You know, you have all of the generals, uh, General Petraeus, you had all of the active duty military. I was doing it inside of the, the Pentagon. And for me, it was a great opportunity to bring change to that organization, but also kind of get my feet wet and find out how much I enjoy being on stage. And I actually did that for the next four years as part of my role was to uh, brief the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And then I kind of became the face of cybersecurity for the DOD and and really what they were doing. And it was a great role, but I, I was kind of ready to kind of step outside of cybersecurity because of cybersecurity has kind of this, I wouldn't say it's not bad news, but it's kind of like the war on drugs where if you do something good, nobody notices. If you do something bad, uh, you know, a drone could come out of the sky or right. you know, someone. Yeah. So it, it had an interesting, you know, role. And I'm someone that, you know, I pride myself that I, I wake up happy and I go to bed happy. I'm, I'm very passionate for everything I do. And so I decided to completely pivot out of that arena and probably went to the most boring technology arena of all of them, even more boring than cyber. And I went to a data center company and became their chief technology evangelist in a data center company that was kind of moving into cloud uh, technology. And the interesting thing for me was I became the face of the company. I became kind of the person that told the story. I connected inside and out, but it allowed me to really become, you know, join different events and become on stage because my company was actually sponsoring the event. So it was less about, I would say, my individual um, speaking talent and more on the fact that my my brand was connecting me. So I was able to, to speak at large events, um, AWS and Gartner. And these, you know, I, I closed out one of the days at AWS in front of 13,000 people was the, where the presentation I was giving the that morning. And for me at the time, it was just what I did. I absolutely loved it. I loved the topic, and I love the opportunity. Uh, little did I know, I should have probably like video recorded that. I probably should have documented a lot of what I was going on there. And um, but I stayed in that role for about two years, grew that uh, that business from about 214 employees to 640 employees in about two years. And at that point, I kind of realized I wanted to go on my own and see how I could kind of grow this connection of technology and social media. And so for the last four years or so, I've been an entrepreneur. I, I help brands of all sizes really leverage new technology to tell their story. So everything from live streaming video to Snapchat, Instagram, and then that kind of bridges across uh, multiple gamuts. And then uh, speaking is kind of the, the prime source. I did about 50 events in 11 countries last year, and I'm on target to do probably around 40 events this year uh, in 2017. Wow, that is that is solid worldwide exposure and lots of stage time. <laughs> it is, and it was in lots of different arenas. I'm very, you know, I kind of got there as a 
cyber geek. I then became kind of a brand speaker, and now I'm doing it as a kind of an entrepreneur, uh, full-time speaker. So I, I think I've, I, I can relate and kind of understand all of the, the advantages as well as pain points kind of in each kind of the different role of, uh, of speaking today. Wow. Well, that is quite the colorful past. And I think it's inspiring because you have so many elements that have really changed along the way that has shaped you to be a master of change. <laughs> Very much so. And you almost, especially with emerging technology, if you're using that to help people build their brands and, and develop their story, I mean, things are changing so quickly. It's got to be an exciting, but also intimidating space, but probably no lack of new content, right? For sure. And I think part of it is, you know, we're, we're in an interesting time and space today where we've been using technology, especially social media for the last nine or 10 years to distance ourselves from, from humans and distance ourselves from the people that were online. You know, we, we send people to a website or we, we add them to do opt-ins. And now we're in a world where, you know, we've always realized that brands are great because they have great people. We've always realized that, you know, people buy from people they like. And I think now more so than ever, we're looking at technology and saying, how does that fit? How do we leverage technology to really share our story? Not really, uh, you know, it's almost bringing this thing full circle and, and shrinking the distance between us and the customer or us and our audience. And so for me, it's not only no short of content, but it's bringing it back to the real essence of just people telling their story and going to where your audience is. And, and I absolutely love that element of, of what I do. And it seems like you are taking your own medicine and you're incorporating these new technologies to share your story at the same time. And I'd be interested in learning some tips of how you bridge that live interaction versus the Facebook live interaction or self-facing camera versus being in front of 13,000 people and really the importance of leveraging this new technology as an upcoming speaker, whether it's just to spread your message, whether it's to share a cause, whether it's to build a business, because I think that we are at this time in space where if you are looking to become a professional speaker and uh, you know try to get 40 to 50 gigs a year in 10 to 15 different countries, how important is adoption and use of these new platforms for you as a speaker and for other people as a speaker? So uh, this is a great question. I think, you know, I, I have the distinct opportunity. What I do is I, I'm on every platform trying every single thing. And what that allows me to do is it allows me to go back to clients, it even allows me to go back to podcasts and conversations and allow people to understand these are the features and benefits. This is the type of audience and interaction that is available on these different platforms and allowing them to select what's best for them. And I think this is an interesting time because I have always believed that we all have a story to tell. And I've never believed in the, you know, the adage, I think, and this is something that I think, you know, inhibits a lot of speakers is they believe they need to be an expert in something or they have to be the only person that, that talks about something. And for me, I'm kind of living proof that, you know, I really share and help people use these technologies the way that I use them. I never convince anybody, you know, you must do that, do it this way because, you know, it's the only way to do it. It's more of, Hey, this is how I do it. This is the results that I'm able to generate. And this is what I think you can do. And I think that that for me is really important. I'm on every one of the platforms. I'm pushing the boundaries of the platforms. I even work with a lot of the different app and technology companies directly as kind of a advisor allowing them to understand the you know the different behaviors and 
to answer your question on kind of the the value, I think this is a as we get more distractions in our life. I, I love to talk on stage during one of my presentations. You know, my my grandfather growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You know, he had three TV channels on his TV and he got a newspaper <laughs> and he would always tell me he really only had two sources because he didn't have a remote for his TV. So really it was one channel on TV and one newspaper. And that's the only place that he got his news. It's the only place he consumed content. And now we're, we have 300 apps on our phone that push notifications that give us all of these different, not only distractions, but opportunities to consume information. And, you know, I'm a dad of three girls and I think I'm raising my daughters in the greatest time in the world because we have all of these opportunities to tell our story and all of these ways and different vehicles. But at the same time, it can be extremely overwhelming. We can spread ourselves extremely thin. And probably the hardest part of it is how do you stand out from the noise when the noise keeps growing and growing and growing? And that's really where I kind of fit in this, this, you know, in this middle road where I wasn't great on video. Video was not my background. I did not have a great YouTube channel, but why video? It was originally Meerkat and then it was Periscope. And now most people know it as Facebook Live. Live video to me was, it just fell in my lap. It was the perfect piece for me because it's a participatory content. And that's a word I kind of made up in my own piece of it. But it allows me, you know, when I create video, like you're just staring into your, your camera and you're creating a video for YouTube, really you're delivering your your message without any other variables being inputted. But when you go on stage or when I go on stage, you know, I, I played poker for a long time semi-professionally and I do a lot of studying of nonverbal cues and body language. I'm, I'm a real big believer in the power of that. And so oftentimes my presentations, although you might see me talk about the same quote unquote subject multiple times on stage, will be drastically different because I'm reading the audience. I'm allowing them to have input. Oftentimes, I will even do a, a Q&A halfway through my presentation that will completely shift the future of the, the second half of the presentation because my goal has always been to provide value for my audience. And there's no way to understand what your audience wants unless you're willing to listen to that. And that's why live video to me is so powerful because it used to be about what I thought people wanted. And now I'm able to actually share on live video my thoughts, but I allow them to shape the content, shape the direction of the content very much like I do on stage. And so, so you talk about how live streaming just landed into your lap and you've taken that as an opportunity to create this engagement through the social platform. You're not just YouTubing in a one direction, not like the bandery thing, <laughs> but, uh, but the live stream for you creates this connectivity and that's what really seems to work with you. Would you encourage other people who want to, I guess, become more traditional speakers on stage to explore these live mediums as a practice tool? What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think there's one of these, you know, it's we're living in a space where we always want to relate with our audience. We always want to know that, you know, our message is being heard. And the interesting thing is we often don't get the feedback until it's too late. We'll get the feedback from you know, a speaker review a week after the event's over, or we'll get even feedback when, you know, you get off stage and there's that line of people giving you information. And I think with live video, it allows you to have that, that real time feedback, which is a little scary for, for some people because, you know, you, you do have to react to the feedback as the comments come on the screen and such. But 
it allows you to not only hone your message, but to truly understand how your message relates with people. And so I think, you know, it's a combination of testing and, and practicing the cadence, understanding, you know, the different examples that you get. You know, one of the things that I've been practicing on is, you know, I speak at a wide range of conferences. I went to a a pet influencer conference. And then the very next week, I did the National uh, Dental uh, Insurance Association Leadership Conference. And the following week, I was at a social media event. And for me, it's one of the things that I like to do is I, I like to go on live video, share a little bit about what I'm talking about, and then test out some of my examples or my analogies and see how they come across. Because, you know, we all know that, you know, it's that speaker we've probably all heard on stage where they're giving an example in their presentation that not only doesn't relate with the audience, but maybe it's the competitor or maybe it's something that they know is, uh, you know, faux pas, you're not supposed to talk about. And so I think live video can help you, you know, practice your delivery, also get real-time feedback. And then last but not least, you know, better understand those unique audiences that you have so that when you are up there, it's not like you've, it's the first time you're talking to the pet influencer group. I've actually done three live streams prior to, and I have a much better understanding of their pain points. And I'm pretty confident that they're going to understand my examples. I love this. So we've had some other guests on the podcast that have talked about whether it's standing at the door to meet and greet people as they come in or talking with people before the event and sort of getting that feedback, getting some fans. You're taking this to the next level. You're saying well before the event, you're using a live stream platform to get in front of that audience. So not only do you get to meet them, but build a potential relationship with them, get feedback in real time of what you're speaking on. And that creates for more relevant content, which is more valuable, whether it's about dog influencers, which now that's on my radar. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going I'm to jump online and check out the dog influencers <laughs> conference. But I think that's a great point. And I think People might be scared, though, still, because there is a bit of vulnerability that comes with live streaming. How do you, I guess, encourage people who are new to the platform to feel comfortable maybe not looking as good as they normally look or not being as comfortable with the technology as they might seem? Do you feel that the audiences, for the most part, are understanding of those issues or is it just sack up, do it, you learn as you go, figure it out? So I think it, it, there's multi-points there. I think the audience is actually very forgiving because live streaming has only really been around from the stare into your phone version of live streaming for a little over two years. So we are, we're all kind of learning together. And I always joke that almost everybody's first live stream is probably a picture of their feet is the first thing they see because you don't realize that the back camera is actually the first camera that's on of your of your phone. And all of a sudden you're like, why are my feet on camera? But I think, you know, even on a bigger note, I think speakers can make the easiest transition in the live video for for two main reasons. Every every time I work with a brand, every time I talk about live video, I explain that there's two principles they must understand if they want to leverage these platforms. And I believe speakers already already understand this. And the first one is perfection is a fairy tale. And if anyone's been a speaker, we all know that oftentimes we can't control things from like the clicker not working to a fire alarm to an AV team that, you know, that maybe wasn't set up correctly or to, you know, being told that you had two projection screens. And when you get there, you have a podium and no projection screen. And I think from a speaker's perspective, we've kind of learned that we're not trying to achieve perfection. We know how to kind of roll with it, which is extremely important in live video. And the second key part that I talked about is control is a, an illusion. 
And I think for a lot of people, when you, when you publish to YouTube, you know, putting out a controlled message, right? It's our speaker reel. It's, you know, we're, we, we've you know, reviewed every single second of the transitions when the text comes in there. But truly, when people want to relate with somebody, they don't look at them from a controlled environment. It's the reason that every conference goer says that their favorite part of a conference is the, you know, unfortunately for our speakers, is usually the networking afterwards or the, you know, the, the uncontrolled environment where it's spontaneity, it's things that happen. And that's really what live video, op, you know, gives you. If you're, if you're willing to embrace the fact that you don't need to be perfect because the viewers aren't seeking perfection. And if you realize that sometimes you won't be able to control the variables, much like we can't control the variables on stage, it allows you to jump on there. And I can tell you, the if you're making a mistake or all of a sudden your audio disappears, it's never like a heckler in the crowd. It is usually like, hey, here's two things to try or, oh man, I had that same problem happen. Do like It's a very forgiving community because like I said, it's it's less than two years old and in the sense of social media and, and technology, you know, I still look at live video as a as an opportunity to really be yourself. But the risk barrier of, of really embarrassing yourself is, is not really there. And remember, every live broadcast can be deleted after you're done being live. So if, if you are someone that likes to lean on that perfection side, and I've done this before for me, you know, for some of these events is I'll go live and I'll talk about certain things, then I'll delete the replay. So it's just for that live viewer. But I think for a lot of people, I have a simple phrase and it just says, you know, press the damn button. And that's really what I mean. Press the button, go live and try it out. I love that. And from a speaking kind of advice on a, the, the actual physical different tactics that you use on stage versus in a live streaming format, I know that there are some that are totally equal on the exact same. Are there any that really stand out on one or the other, as in uh, something that you should make sure you do on live video that maybe is not as important on stage or vice versa? Oh, that's a great one. And I haven't, so the first thing that jumped to my mind is I always tell people for their first 20 or 30 live streams, I actually ask them to grab a sticky note and put the sticky note over the number of live viewers. Oh. Because when you're a speaker, we all have seen that spot where, you know, and I actually had this uh, at, social media marketing world two years ago. Unfortunately for me, I was the presentation before Gary Vaynerchuk and Gary, right. Gary was in a different location. And with about 10 minutes left to go on my presentation, about you know half of the audience got the push notification that said, make sure you get here early to see Gary. And I watched the audience get up and leave. Right. And, and like, it's, it's, that, it's that feeling of like, wow, they must all have got the same and you know that's not that's that's the rare occasion and i think on live right. video you'll see numbers fluctuate and for new people they'll go oh my they'll worry about hey i have five people to oh my goodness i have a hundred to now i have 20 like what do i do now and i think as a speaker we've always kind of embraced like hey we are we are delivering the best that we can do and you know who's in the audience we we can't control a lot of that and so I always tell people, put the sticky note over the number so that you don't know how many people are in there because you want to deliver the same quality, the same level of engagement. If there's five people in there or if there's 500, just like we would pitch a brand and say, you know, hey, I will give, you know, the side room of 50 people just as much takeaway and as value as if you gave me the main stage with 5,000. Yeah, a phrase my mom always would say is, Ryan, it only takes one, <laughs> right? Yes. And, and I tell you what, I... When I'm on live video, I actually think about it as if I'm having a conversation with one person because it, it allows me, you know, to actually kind of break down some of the examples. And it's to that reason, like if I can impact 
one person's day, change how they do something, or maybe inspire them to tweet about my session. If I can just, if I can just inspire one person, that's one more person than I had before I went live. Now that brings up an interesting point. I was checking out your website and I love how you integrate the actual tweets of people as testimonials. Talk a little bit about how important it is and the art of, you know, this whole validation process, because there's a fine line, right? You know, it's nice after you speak, if people voluntarily give you feedback and testimonials, there's the element of sometimes there being a structured feedback form, which you said you sometimes get when it's too late, but social media and Twitter specifically creates this real time. So when you're speaking, are you cueing people and saying, Hey, if you like what's going on, tweet me up. Are you introducing your social handles in the beginning? Cause I think that from a presentation standpoint, there's a lot to learn about merging the two worlds of on and offline. So for me, I always have a slide with all my handles and I, I have my own hashtag, the hashtag GingerMC, and I try to get people to do it. But there's this fine line between being professional and self-promotional. How do you handle encouraging people to interact on social while you're live on stage? So I kind of have a, a different approach. And this kind of comes from just me being someone that loves and is a fan of speakers and a fan of, you know, promoting those that are doing well is whenever I get introduced and someone's reading my bio, my goal is before they even hear my name, as they hear my, my name on stage, they already have engaged with me on Twitter or they've seen my tweets. And what I mean by that is I actually participate on the hashtag. I, every event I go to, I do a Twitter video when I land in the city and I post it with the hashtag, I tag the event coordinators, and then I try to actively engage with either in other people's sessions or those that are, you know, hey, I'm, I'm about to board my airplane to head to this event, or my company is, you know, I'm, I'm excited for my company retreat this weekend. And what I will do is I will actively engage in that hashtag leading up to me getting on stage. Because when I get on stage, and I, and I do factor this in, and uh, I've had this discussion with Jay Bear, uh, a good friend of mine who's we've kind of I've always uh, bounced things off of, but I actually think about my slides not only as tweetables, but do they look good when someone takes a picture of them with their phone? Because we know that we're moving into this environment where you know five years ago, if anyone was looking at their phone, you as a speaker thought you weren't very good. And then we got to this right, right. this arena that said if they're looking at their phone, that means they're posting on social about us. That means they're they're even better. Now we're into this world where we're taking pictures of it. We're posting it to, to Instagram or to Twitter, or sometimes we're taking pictures of it and we're going back and using those as takeaways. And so for me, I, I make it a mission that every event I go to, I'm part of that community and hashtag before I ever get on stage. Therefore, you know, and I have a little bit of a, I would say, practice what I preach, not what I'm doing. You know, I, I teach people, you know, use your first name, last name as your Twitter account because it does make it easier for people to tweet at you. Unfortunately, I built a brand around iSocial fans that it, it isn't that case. And, and yes, I have the handle Brian Fanzo. So if someone tweets me there, I can monitor that. But I want to actually present my name. I want to be a part of the conversation. And to answer your question on the promotional thing, this is how I think of it. If you tell people what to do, if you get on there and say, hey, come to my session, this is what you need to do, that is self-promotional. But for me, if you talk about how how excited you are and then why they should come to your session, that goes from being promotional to being helpful. And I don't think you can ever get in trouble being like, hey, is anyone here having trouble? You know, what's your what's the hardest thing you're you're dealing with with growing your personal brand? Or 
you know, hey, I want to talk about live video. How many people that are attending the event have gone live on video? And by me not only you know asking that feedback, but kind of bringing them along on my journey, it comes across more as, hey, I want to be a part of it. And you know, this staples from you know, I do something also a little bit different on this is that in my contract, I actually tell the event organizer that I will guarantee six hours at your event. So I, I, I will not just be there for the one hour I'm on stage. And the reason for me is I want them to know and I want to be a part of the event and of the community. And yes, it, it might you know stop me from having two gigs in a day. And I've talked to many of my good friends who said they would never do that because you know they know what they're selling is part of that one hour on stage. But I really look at that, you know, the reason those tweets are on my website, the reason I use the tweets as part of my testimonials is when I talk to an event organizer, I usually come out straight out and say, you know, is your goal to satisfy the sponsors to sell tickets or to provide as much value to the audience? And you know, not very many organizers will probably tell you 100% the truth, but a majority of them will be like, <laughs> you know, our audience is who we care the most about. And for me, the testimonials are great. I have lots of testimonials from you know event organizers, from my peers, my fellow speakers, but it's that true audience engagement when someone says, this is the most I've been inspired since the Tony Robbins presentation. Like that to me is you know, like, that's my goal, right? That, that's where I look at it. And I think that's where if you be a part of the conversation ahead of time and you will, you make it easy for people to share. So I love having the social handles, you know, on the slides. I also make my slides very tweetable. So when someone shares them, it's not too much information, but it's also not a background of the slide that doesn't look good in a dark room. Right. And I think these are things that maybe are taking it a little far for a lot of people. They're like, wait a second, like I'm building my slides for the audience that's in the, in the room, but let's face right. it, there, there is an element of, you know, as people monitor a hashtag. And one of my favorite advantages of this is I actually get hired to speak at the same event back to back years compared to where that doesn't seem to be the trend as much. And when someone asks me why I think that is, it's because I care about the community and come in it to it as part of the conversation. Therefore, the next year, they still want me to be there because it's I'm part of it. I'm not just there as kind of a contractor in to deliver a message and then leave. And I've seen that in action in social media marketing world. And I believe in that same concept. I, I've uh, invented the word tweetnado. And <laughs> I use that when I go to conferences and I create a tweetnado where using the conference hashtag, I will dive into and get involved with conversations and create as much value as possible. Now, I do get sometimes annoyed at the tweets that are just that have no value. Like I'm here at this or this person is on stage. And I've seen a lot of your tweets the opposite of that. Like they are value driven. They're a video with information or it's highlighting something that somebody else has had value of. So, you know, I believe that it's not the volume of tweets, it's the quality of tweets. And then if you get the quality of tweets with the volume of tweets, that's a tweet NATO right there. I love it. I love it. And for those that are listening, I know there's a lot of speakers that will say, Brian, you know, I'm, I'm not active on Twitter or I'm on Twitter, but I really only engage at an event. And I love Twitter. Twitter is without question my favorite platform. And you know, me too. Me too. Yeah, you know, both of us were even going back on there earlier today. Yeah. Well, here, here's an example for some people that didn't know we got disconnected, and I sent you an email, and that just wasn't fast enough. So like, I just straight up tweeted you, and you tweeted me back, and then we went to DM, and we handled it. It's, it's funny <laughs> how that works too. And and for those that are not on Twitter, I think there's an intimidation of it. But here's the coolest part about Twitter at events. 
No matter how many followers we have, you and I love Twitter, we're on it all the time. When you tweet with a hashtag and people are watching a hashtag, this your tweet gets the same amount of power, the same amount of validity, the same amount of oomph within that that hashtag as everyone else. So if you have one follower or 100,000 followers, when someone's monitoring a hashtag, it does not matter, it does not come across. So for some people, I think they, that we look at it and say, well, since I don't use Twitter every day, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna be a part of the Twitter conversation. And I will say, I will challenge that and say, you can be a part of an event conversation no matter how many followers you have. And that, that usually gets people over that hump of like, oh, okay, because you know, if, if my tweet, they all look the same in the feed, there is an element of that conversation. And I think that also kind of comes down to, you know, this feedback piece where for me, you know, I also live stream a lot of my presentations and I'll hear a lot of people say, you know, Brian, aren't you afraid you're giving away content? Brian, people are taking a picture of every one of your slides and posting it to right. social. And for me, you know, the, the, the answer back is, if I can inspire people to always share and always promote my my content because it's it's that important to them, I'm very confident that I will continue to get those people to show up in my seats and pay for tickets. Versus the old way of thinking, I think was you know if you know if I was out of sight, out of mind, and you, I was exclusive, and you could only get me at these four places, then that's where I'm going to get the most value. I think today is actually the opposite of that where if someone can relate to you and become part of your community leading up to events, you'd be amazed. I mean, for me, it still, you know, humbles me to the, the biggest arenas when people are traveling hours upon hours to come see me speak. And they've watched me on live video four times that week. But for them, there is that kind of connective part of the journey, as well as, you know, being in that audience and being a part of something that is truly special that cannot be kind of mirrored online. And a thought just came to mind. I like to make up stuff all the time. And this idea of a digital word of mouth, that's really what you're doing. The value is a conversation aside, but what you're really doing by this engagement and energy that you're creating online is you're creating digital word of mouth. And word of mouth, there's nothing more powerful unless you throw a digital on it. And this idea of holding back your best content is so backwards thinking and uh, John Bates, a good friend of mine, he's a great speaker. He's been on the podcast and he talks about if you give your absolute best, every single thing of the best information you have, people are just going to assume that you have better information out there, right? Because they're thinking that same thing. So you give the best information you can and people still are going to want to learn more, no matter what golden nugget you give out. And especially this idea of sharing, I think really sharing is caring and that comes back and your ability to get rehired by engaging in the community, I think is a, is a huge and simple step that people can take. I think once you get to a paid level, you show up, you're like, I'm being paid to be here. I'm in and I'm out. But you've taken this more of a holistic approach that you become part of that community. And it's not always about the money as much as it is, is about that community that you're growing. And those people follow you. For people who don't know about the, the thousand true followers concept, you don't have to have hundreds of thousands of followers, right? You just have to have a few that are dedicated, drive hours to see you. And if you win and if you build a product, they will buy it. That's the truth. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I love the, you know, the digital element 
Yeah, I think millennials get a lot of, you know, hey, millennials want to get their voice heard. And they're, you know, and I would challenge every generation wishes that they had the digital megaphone available to us today. Because, you know, I, a lot of my speaking gigs, you know, I, I've spoken 11 countries last year. And I would say eight of those 11, they, I had never met the people that hired me or the people that advocated for me in person. They didn't see me Ooh. on stage. They connected me with me digitally. They maybe watched a live stream of my, of one of my presentations. And to me, that's the, you know, the ROI of digital. That's the, the value there. And I think it's, it is an amazing, it is an amazing power to really not only inspire action through digital, but this is, I talk a lot about, it's not about online versus offline anymore. It's just about living and digital is just as much as a part of that as what we do on stage. And I've always kind of believed, even when I took a job early on, you know, my goal was always, how can I make my manager look good? Because if my manager looked good, my manager would get promoted, I would get promoted, or we as a team would be good. And I take that same exact approach with every event organizer. How can I make that event organizer look good? If it's working with a sponsor, if it's being a part of the community, if it's helping a hashtag trend, because ultimately I believe I'm getting paid to deliver a message and inspire. And that inspiration can come before, during, and after what I'm on stage for. Yeah. And if you pull the stats on the conference hashtag and, and you're crushing it and it visibly shows that you're a top interactor, top influencer, top tweeter, that's millions of impressions that you're bringing to the table. There might be an audience of 500, but you're bringing millions of eyeballs to it. And I think that that digital connection is so key. You talk about ROI. I've got this concept I'm forming called the I ROI. And I hear so often people looking for the ROI when it comes to digital and social media. But I think that there's an IROI. It's an invisible ROI. You don't see it until it's there. And you have to sort of put in the time, the effort, the grit, the, the tweets. And then all of a sudden, like you said, you get speaking gigs because of your social presence. But if you were to look back, it's not like you can see that return on investment until it happens. So I tell people that it's an IROI. It's invisible until you see it. And you have to sort of believe in it. To, to do in the first place. I love that. I love that. I reverse engineer a lot of my paid speaking opportunities down to figuring out what relationship, what event, what dinner that I go to that led me to the first connection that got me a part of that person's community, even getting on a podcast. You know, I try to look at that and I reverse engineer like, okay, who connected me with this person? And it's amazing how many of these things lead into, I was a part of a Twitter chat or I, you know, I was supporting someone, another speaker at an event. That person started following me because they saw my name in that hashtag. And so I like that. I like that IROI because I, I do that a lot now, especially, you know, it gets tiresome sometimes, you know, tweeting and always being on and engaging and providing all that value. But when you're able to kind of backwards realize how powerful those little micro moments are, it makes it worth it for sure in the end. Definitely. So if you were to give some basic tips for people that want to speak in 50 different locations in 11 different countries during the world, you know, I don't want this podcast to be the make money by speaking, sign up for this webinar, you can make money, right? But right. there is this natural progression where, you know, everybody has their own story. You perfect the way in which you communicate your message to drive value to an audience. And if you can get paid for that, that's awesome. And uh, a lot of people talk about, you know, not anything really happening immediately, but there being this process and story along the way. But for those people that want to take their message and monetize it, you've obviously done that. You're doing it. How would they start or what would you say to them? What would you say to yourself 
when you were starting this process to make it easier or more of a direct? So, I, you know, this is probably one of the, I think the hardest paths, you know, I love speaking because we can all take our own journey into this arena. We can all take our own journey into the paid arena. We can even take it into the arena of you making a lot of money in this space, which I, you know, some of my good friends are doing. And I, and I think that journey is exciting, but there's no, you know, carbon copy. There's no, hit, you know, playbook of these 10 things, but a couple of right, things right. that I learned, you know, along the way is, you know, you'll hear people say, Hey, I can't afford to pay you, but I'm going to give you exposure. And exposure kind of became like a, almost like a joke because you're like, oh, great. You're, you know, like exposure doesn't, but I started to take exposure and break that down. And so for a lot of events, I would be like, well, you know, I appreciate the sponsor. I understand you don't have money. I would love to have lunch with these two CEOs of your two sponsors, or I would love to, I would love to have access to your senior VP, who's the one that pitched you. Because when you start thinking of exposure, exposure on what I provide on stage or what, you know, you're doing, the message you're doing, yes, that is powerful. But when someone says like that's all they can offer, more times than not, they are willing to do all of these things that are not, that don't have a dollar sign on to them. They are just, they just don't have, you know, that physical money. And so I started looking at what I like to call, you know, like, if I'm going to think that this event's going to be valuable, what would make it valuable for me? And oftentimes it isn't money. You know, I can tell you, the very first IBM event I ever spoke at, I used this exact tactic. And I said, I would like 15 minutes with the senior VP of the company and I will speak for free. And I ended up having 15 minutes that turned into a lunch that turned into her before I even spoke at that event, her booking me for four future events based on that one-on-one time that we had. And those were future events paid, right? And, And for me, like going on stage there, it was almost one of those things like this speaking opportunity actually reverse, you know, got me the FaceTime where it, it's almost the right, other right. way. And I think I wish I knew that early on because I, I would take that exposure. I'm like, Oh, okay, thanks. And you know, I would go there and you'd have your speaker name tag, but I think there's that, there's that element. And then along the lines of that, like, how do you kind of start you know pushing the envelope is you have to be able to tell your story. And then you also have to be able to understand what the, you know, what the message is, what the, what is that event trying to accomplish? And for me, a lot of times, you know, if an event is on the, you know, Hey, we, this is the first ever event we had, you know, our budget is tight. Like we, we want to make this the best event ever. We love to have you there. You know, when I start thinking about what matters to them, I know that they have sponsors and they have people that they're trying to get to, you know, come along on this journey. And I'll oftentimes look, Hey, how about this? Tell one of your sponsors that I will do a workshop the day before I speak if they're willing to pay my entire speaking fee. And for a lot of people, they're like, wait a second, that's a lot more extra work. But here's how I look at it. It gives me an opportunity to meet a new potential customer that could hire me because this is a sponsor that you know, wasn't the initial hire. It gives me FaceTime with an audience that I get to, you know, that I'm going to be speaking to the next day. Therefore, I'm going to better understand the pain points and the nuances of that community. And I just gave the event organizer a path to them getting closer to their goal, giving more value to their sponsor and getting a speaker that they want. To me, that's like a win-win all the way around. And the weird part is until you start asking those things, you never know that they're there because you yeah, because like, it wasn't on the speaker sponsor. It wasn't on the, the sponsor sheet, right? The little matrix. Nope. Nobody said there'd be a private workshop for you specifically as an upgrade. And those organizers are always looking to provide more value to the sponsors and what a great opportunity to come in there and negotiate non-monetary terms that turn into money. And I think that's the key, right? And I think also you have to, 
know, it's that, it's that weird balance because I was guilty of giving away probably too much of my time or giving away too much to certain events or certain things because I wanted, you know, I wanted to make that path. And then the next year they hire me, but they're not hiring me at the, the amount that I want. And I think that was because, you know, there's a difference between giving away your time versus maximizing the time that you plan to put in. And I think that's, to me, is kind of like that unique difference where if it's just a workshop to like five people that aren't going to have it, you know, like that's not going to be that, that value. But if I know that by doing this, you know, couple hours the day before is going to knock out three other possible opportunities as well as make three more people fans of mine. I mean, to me and one of the event, you know, inbound, which is put on by HubSpot, um, HubSpot out of Boston, you know, I spoke there last year for the first time and I was beyond humbled when I walked into the room and the CMO of the company was there and I was not on the main stage. I was not the main keynote, but when I came up to him afterwards and I was like, I, I thanked them. I gave him a hug and was like, thank you so much for coming to see me speak. And they were like, Brian, you've given, you've made my sponsors happy and you've been part of this community inspiring me to come and, and put on my calendar that I want to come give, see you speak because it's my thank you to you. And like, how cool is that when it's like, wow, yeah, they're kind of almost doing what you would dream of. And, and honestly, all I did pre to that event was support and celebrate, which is what I would have done, you know, natively. And I think that's a lesson learned for me as well is that, you know, if you do some of that amplification, some of that engaging in the hashtag conversation strategically and do it with passion, the ROI that or that IROI, like you were saying, is amazing how many unique little nuggets will happen. And more often than not, I don't even talk about what you know room I'm in or what time I'm speaking. Usually for me is I want to inspire you and provide you so much value that you seek that information out. I don't have to put it in your face. Absolutely. Well, I wish we had a couple more hours, but we have the rest of our lives. So I, I'm looking forward to connecting you, continuing to follow you, see what these conferences and, you know, hopefully share the stage sometime soon. But the information that you've provided here today is so inspiring because it's things that everyone can do. And I always like to share that successful speakers are not doing things that everybody else cannot do. Successful speakers are doing things that everybody can do but not everybody does. And you're doing those things. And I believe that's why you're successful. And it's empowering to think that by sharing what you're doing, if other people just do those things, which everyone can do, it'll help levitate them. Uh, it'll help create more information for the audience, value all around. And the world is a better place as a result. I love it. Nothing better than me. You know, I, I say my true passion is connecting great people with great people to do great things. And I, you know, I think that's, that's the ultimate mission. And, and you summarize that, that true value of a speaker. It is, it is that element of putting all these dots together. And the nice part is there is no one way to do it. And the bad news on that side is you kind of have to pave your own road, but it's a, it's a fun road to pave. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, everybody check out Brian at, at iSocialFRA or no, just F-A-N-Z. So that's at iSocialFANZ. Connect with me as well at Ryan Folland and let's continue the conversation on Twitter. Brian. Amazing stuff, buddy. We'll see you online and we'll talk to you soon. Cheers, my friend. Have a good one. All right. Thanks, guys. Well, you're listening to the World of Speakers podcast. I'm Ryan Folland, and we are bringing speakers from around the world to share with you how you can do the same thing. We will see you later on. And if you want to catch up on old episodes, go to theworldofspeakers.com without the the, just worldofspeakers.com. All right. This is Ryan signing out. Peace. Peace.